Father, we thank You that when our world needed help, You sent a baby, Your own Son, the Creator God, one with the Father. You sent Him to become one of us in the womb of Mary. We wonder at this. We don't understand all of the cosmic significance of that. But I pray that somehow as we open Your Word today, that the glories of Christ will be seen. And that our faith would grow. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text is Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, which we read. And when the prophet Isaiah wrote these words 700 years before the birth of Christ, it was hard for the people of Israel to understand the significance of this and all the other great prophecies of the Messiah. And as we stand on the other side of Bethlehem and Calvary, there are things that we still don't understand about the great prophecies of Isaiah. Because so much of the messianic prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. But the premise of this series on ancient prophecies of His first coming is that we can learn about the second coming by understanding the first. I so much appreciate David Brown and his choice of music. Not just because it is good music and great music and wonderful music, uh, but the doctrines of the music that he chooses is so wonderful. The Christmas cantata presented last Sunday morning did not end in Bethlehem. It ended with the fact that he is coming back again. Because that is our hope. Our Christmas is not just about the past, it's about the future. Because just as those who were ready for His first coming had anticipation and hope and excitement, so we, who believe all of this book, are looking forward to the fulfillment of ancient prophecies, yet unfulfilled, but surely to be fulfilled, even as those were in His first coming. This past week, over 250 Israeli rabbis signed a letter to the White House in support of President Donald Trump's recognition of Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the Jewish people. I quote from that letter, You have rare, a rare privilege now to be the first president to spearhead the recognition of Jerusalem as the eternal capital of the state of Israel, the rabbis wrote. 
we are sure that you will be remembered in the history of the Jewish people forever as one who stood at the fore and was not afraid. May God's promise to Joshua be fulfilled upon you. Quote, Did I not command you? Be strong and have courage. Do not fear and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Rabbi Eliehu, the initiator of the letter, said, We see this recognition as yet another stage in the implementation of Isaiah's prophecy of the Gentiles' recognition of the centrality of Jerusalem. We hope that other enlightened and believing nations will follow in the United States' steps. They blessed President Trump, and he's going to need it. I'll tell you. Europe, now China, and Russia are against it. The Pope is against it. And too many liberal Protestant churches throughout our country and throughout the world, they are against it. But those of us who understand the fact that the whole Bible is true, and that everything that God promises will be fulfilled, we say it's a step in the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. Now, why is Jerusalem so important? And what does this have to do with Christmas? Look with me at Luke chapter 1 and verse 30, please. If you can find verses in the Bible... We are going to be comparing Scripture with Scripture, using the Bible as our commentary on the Bible once again. Luke chapter 1 and verse 30. This is the angel speaking to Mary in the Annunciation. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name Him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And notice the next phrase. And the Lord God will give Him the throne of His Father David. And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and His kingdom will have no end. The first part of that promise has been fulfilled, but the second part is yet unfulfilled. And our world is very confused about Jesus. This month's issue of National Geographic asks the question, who is Jesus? And they try to determine it from history and from archaeology. People ask the question, is he merely the baby in the manger? Is he the helpless martyr on a cross? Is he the founder of a great and inspiring ethical religion? Is he an example of peace and nonviolence? Who is Jesus? Oh, we will spend the rest of eternity exploring the realities of who is Jesus. But I want to present to you one 
aspect of Jesus, one facet of the diamond who Jesus is, I want to tell you He is the Messiah who will rule on earth from the throne of His Father David. This is the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. We're going to look at it in three parts today. The forecast, the fulfillment, and then the function, the practical application of this for us today. So, we see first of all in the forecast the prophecy that a child will be born to us. And that speaks of the Messiah's humanity. A son will be given to us. This speaks of the Messiah's deity. As we see in John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He is deity. He is God in human flesh. The incarnation is prophesied. And then the government will be upon His shoulder. Turn with me to Isaiah 22.22 to see the meaning of this as we compare Scripture with Scripture. What wonderful shoulders Jesus has. It was upon those shoulders that He carried our cross to die for our sins. It is upon His shoulders that He is the Good Shepherd's Shepherd carries us as wandering sheep back to the fold when we stray away. But there is something else that is said to be on his shoulder here in Isaiah 22, or 22, 22. 22, 22. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. And when he shuts, no one will open. This is a big key. You know, in ancient times, uh, keys were not these little things that you used to open doors in your house. Keys were big, huge things. There is one of these big, huge keys that is held by a Muslim family who are charged with opening the doors of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. They hold that key. That is, they control the access to that ancient church building. But here, the Messiah is the one who has the key of the house of David. Look over in Revelation chapter 1 to see this key mentioned again. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. Revelation 3, 7. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He who is holy, who is true who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. When they give you the keys, that's authority, isn't it? When I became your interim pastor, they gave me these keys. I think they're the keys to everything. I don't know, but... There's a lot of keys here. And when I get here in the morning, I can open the door. They even gave me a a, a code for the alarm system. I feel very, very privileged. I feel special. 
I feel like I have authority to open and to shut uh, the buildings of Wake Chapel Christian Church. But Jesus, He holds the key of David. What is that key, the key to? It is the key to the throne of David, which is the rightful throne of planet Earth. Adam was given authority over this planet. He gave away the keys to Satan. But Jesus came to buy them back. And He is the one who holds the right to rule from the earthly throne of His Father David on that eternal throne promised to Him. The government will be upon His shoulder. And then He'll be called these great four titles. Pele Yoetz, Wonderful Counselor. El Gabor, the Mighty God. As Thomas said, My Lord and My God. The Everlasting Father, that is the Father of Eternity. Avi Ad. And He is the Prince of Peace. Sar Shalom. He brings peace to this troubled world. And He brings peace to our troubled lives. Look with me at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20 to understand the peace that Jesus brings to an individual person's life. I hope you have this peace. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 20. 20, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross. Through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Jesus is the great reconciler. We hear today about a divided nation. We experience divided families. We experience so many divided things that should be together but are not. But Jesus is the great reconciler. He brings a peace that is not merely the cessation of warfare, but it is the shalom of beauty and unity and love. And how does He do that? Through the blood of His cross. He is the one who fought the battle, who shed the blood so that we might be reconciled to a holy God even though we are sinners. Only through His blood. And that is the basis by which anyone has peace with God. Sometimes I talk to people who are dying and they say, well, I've made my peace with God. I'm not usually satisfied with that level of detail. I want to know more. So I'll ask them. I'll say, so how did you do that? And some of them have really flimsy answers. They'll say like, well, I forgave my brother-in-law, or I uh, paid all my debts, or 
you know, well, I don't know, something to do with their will or, you know, there's all kinds of flimsy answers. There's only one answer to the fact that I'm at peace with God and I'm ready to die. And that is that I am trusting in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. He paid for my sins with his blood and he conquered death for me. And I know that my sins are forgiven and he's given me eternal life and I know I'm going to heaven. If you've got that story, then you are at peace with God. But don't give me some flimsy story about I was baptized, uh, you know, or I joined a church or I've tried hard or I've stayed out of trouble or something like that. Anything but the blood of Christ is a flimsy basis for peace with God. He is the prince of peace. He is the ruler whose rule is peace. And notice his government and peace will increase without end. How many of you believe in big government? I do. As long as Jesus is running it. Amen? (laughs) I do. This government is going to continually increase for eternity. It's going to get bigger and bigger and more pervasive and invasive. Hey, the only government we want to be like that is the one that Jesus runs. Any other government, you better keep an eye on those folks, I'm telling you. It's going to get better every day forever. And you realize in the millennial kingdom, you're going to be a government employee if you're a believer in Christ? Yeah, if you have any rewards, you're going to be a government employee under the rule of King Jesus. Amen. And he will rule over his kingdom. He is the rightful ruler. He will order it and establish it with judgment and justice because all lives matter to Jesus. Born and unborn, young and old, well and sick, all matter to Him. He is the one who will rule. He is going to drain every swamp. He is going to clean house. Not just in America, but around the world. And I don't think we know how much this world needs to be cleaned up. I don't think we know how corrupted it is. I don't think we know how weighed down we are with injustice in our world. Only when we see it run right will we know how bad it was. How is he going to do that? You say, well, he's going to do it by the churches being influential in the world. Good luck with that. He's going to do it by capturing institutions and putting the right people in office. Well, that'd be nice, but that's not going to do it. It is the zeal of the Lord that will perform this. Only He can do that. All the king's horses and all the king's men cannot put this Humpty Dumpty together again. But the king can, and he will. And we believe it, because the Bible tells me so. That is the prophecy that we have here in 
Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. But why does the Pope reject Jerusalem as the capital of Israel? Why do Presbyterians and Reformed theologians and Roman Catholics and most Protestants think that the nation of Israel being back in the land again is just kind of annoying? It is only people who believe the whole Bible and that the whole Bible is to be taken at plain meaning that believe that Israel as a nation again is the beginning of that miracle that God prophesied. That God is causing those dry bones to come together. He is drawing back Jewish people from all over the planet to that land that He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the reestablishment of the Hebrew language, which was a dead language, as dead as Latin. Now in Israel, it is their language that all of them speak. A nation that was dead for hundreds of years is now being restored to life again. This has never happened in the history of the world. And people who believe the Bible believe that this is fulfilled prophecy. The church I pastored for 29 and a half years, Limerick Chapel, in 1934, when they founded that church, they wrote it in their doctrinal statement, which by its constitution cannot be changed, that someday Israel will be a nation again. Fourteen years before they declared themselves as a nation, how could they put that in their doctrinal statement? Because they read it in the Bible. They believed it. And it has happened. It is happening. Yet in unbelief, they do not yet believe in Jesus, but they will. A remnant of Israel will someday believe. Now what does the Bible say? I want to give you a quick summary of what the Bible says. So fasten your seatbelts, we're going to move quick. We go back to Genesis 17.6. And God says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. And then in 2 Samuel 7, God says to David at the end of his life, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. God said that in an unconditional covenant with King David. It is clarified in Psalm 89, where God says, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. My mercy I will keep for him forever and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever and his throne as the days of heaven. My covenant I will not break nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Hey, the sun and the moon still there? 
That is the assurance that God will keep the Davidic covenant. Just as the rainbow is there to remind us of the Noahic covenant, that God will never destroy the whole world with water again. So the sun and the moon every day and every night are God's assurance of His promise to David that the Son of David will rule on David's throne. The beauty of this rule is described in Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Did you ever cut down a tree in your yard and leave the stump there? Did you ever do that? I did that. I had a tree grow in the backyard. It was kind of annoying. I cut it down. And you know what? A couple of years later, there were these little shoots coming out of that stump. And then a couple of years later, there were a couple of trees there. Wow. And we say, well, the Davidic dynasty was cut off. That's true. But there is a little shoot out of the root of David. And that little shoot becomes a branch. And that is the Messiah Jesus. Like a root out of a dry ground, Isaiah 53 says. Out of that stump comes the rod, the branch out of its roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. It will no longer be a matter of who has the best lawyer. It will no longer be a matter of the prejudice of judge or jury. We will have justice because we will be ruled by the one who knows everything. Who knows every motive. Who knows every deed done in darkness. Who knows every thought. He knows everything. He will judge the world. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. And even nature will be changed when he rules. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. Now today, if a wolf and a lamb lie down together, usually the lamb is inside the wolf. But that will not be the case in the kingdom of Christ. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. You won't have to take your kid to the zoo. Your kid can have his own zoo. You know? Isn't that going to be incredible? Wow. Animals will not hurt each other. And they will not hurt people. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra hole. Look, Mom! Isn't he cool the way he flares his neck? Playing with the cobra. Ah, you're playing with that stupid cobra again. (laughs) Wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den. Yeah. 
They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Isn't that incredible? Preachers are going to be out of business. Sunday school, now. Everybody is going to know the Lord. Isn't that going to be amazing? Wow. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, because Jesus is not only the stem out of Jesse's roots, he is Jesse's root, who shall stand as banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Isaiah 16, 5, In mercy the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. You see, Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. He is the only one who can sit in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, and rule from the throne of David because He is prophet, priest, and king, the anointed one, the true Messiah. The Davidic king will be the Lord Himself. He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. And Jerusalem will be the capital of the world. And He will be called the Lord, our righteousness. This hope was kept alive in the Babylonian captivity as recorded in Ezekiel 37 where it says, David my servant shall be king over them. David long dead is prophesied as the prince of the coming kingdom. Jesus, the son of David, will rule with David, the resurrected one under him. Has that been fulfilled yet? No. In the book of Daniel, we have the four great Gentile kingdoms recorded, and then the final kingdom is the kingdom of the Lord Himself ruling over all the Gentile kingdoms in the millennial kingdom. In the book of Hosea, again it says David will be their king. Amos says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David which has fallen down and rebuild it as in the days of old. Zechariah 14 tells us the dramatic picture of how this will take place. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. And in that day His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And the Lord shall be King over all the earth. From Jerusalem He will rule and reign. So, the uniform message of the entire Old Testament is that there will be a literal, earthly, historical restoration of the Davidic kingdom ruled by the Messiah on the throne of David in Jerusalem yet in the future. What is the fulfillment of that prophecy? We already read in Luke chapter 1 and verse 32, He will be great will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus is the only one alive today 
who can prove his right to the throne. Because in 70 AD, when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem, they destroyed the temple, and with it, all the genealogical records of Israel that had been carefully preserved down through the centuries. In our New Testament, we have the genealogy. Did you ever try to read the genealogies? All those begats and all those weird names and all that stuff, and you say, what in the world is that in the Bible for? That just seems so unnecessary and, and, and just irrelevant. Why would that have to be there? No, that is the birth certificate of the Messiah. Those are his papers. Those prove that he is the one who has the right to rule from the throne of his father, David, because it proves that both Mary, his physical mother, and Joseph, the one who was his legal but not physical father, were both descendants of King David, and that proves that Jesus is the son of David with the right to rule from David's throne. Those genealogies have meaning today. And that's why even though Jewish people, many of them are looking for a Messiah, there can only be one, and that is Jesus. No one else could ever prove that He was the Son of David. The genealogies prove it. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, people continually called out, Son of David, have mercy on us. O Lord, Son of David, Hosanna to the Son of David. Who is the Christ? Whose Son is He? The Son of David. Jesus is the Son of David. Jesus calls Himself both the root and the offspring of David in Revelation twenty-two sixteen. I, Jesus, have sent My angel to testify of these things in the churches. I am the root and offspring of of David. He presented himself as king to the literal nation of Israel. Jesus said to them in Matthew 19:28 that in the genera- regeneration when the son of man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus came and offered himself as the king of Israel, as the Messiah, as the son of David. But He came to His own. His own did not receive Him. They rejected Him as their King. They said, we have no King but Caesar. They said, He is not our King. Crucify Him. And so, He who came to rule and to reign and to set up His kingdom from Jerusalem and Israel over all the earth was rejected, was hung on a cross. This was a fulfillment of God's sovereign plan that the Messiah should first suffer and then come into His glory. That first the cross and then later the crown. In the book of Acts, we read this in chapter 1. The disciples came together and said to Jesus, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. 
but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. What did he say? There is a parenthesis now called the church, the bride of Christ made of both Jew and Gentile. God is calling out a people for His name, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. We are in the parenthesis of this gospel grace age in which it is our job to preach Christ and the gospel throughout the world. But is God done with Israel? No. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 that some of you are studying, even now in your Romans course, tells us, has God cast away His people? Certainly not. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away His people whom He foreknew. But hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile comes in. When that last soul is saved and forms the church, then the church will be raptured. And then God will again be dealing with the nation of Israel in the tribulation period, preparing them for believing in their Messiah and Him coming to destroy all of their enemies and to rule and to reign upon the earth. And we will come and rule and reign with Him. You say, well, pastor, if that's true, why do most Christians not believe this? Most Christians are amillennialists. They believe that the church is Israel and Israel is the church. They believe the throne of David is God's throne in heaven. They believe that the church has spiritually fulfilled already all of the promises to Israel because Israel is the church and the church is Israel. They confuse these matters. However, People who believe the whole Bible and believe the Bible in the plain sense of the words of the Bible believe in the coming kingdom of God. David, Solomon, and Mary, and Jesus himself believed in the literal fulfillment of the Davidic covenant in Christ. We are interpreting the prophecies the way Jesus and the apostles did. In fact, no Christian interpreted any of the Bible prophecies in anything but a literal way until the 3rd century A.D. Little church history lesson, you ready? In Alexandria, Egypt, two men began to teach the allegorical method of Bible interpretation, Clement and Origen. It arose out of a method employed by Greek philosophers who allegorized the uglier portions of their religious heritage to make them look more presentable. They used the allegorical method to smooth over the more difficult parts of the Bible and to unite biblical truth and Greek philosophy. Dwight Pentecost wrote, The allegorical method was not born out of the study of the Scriptures, but rather out of a desire to unite Greek philosophy and the Word of God. It did not come out of a desire to present the truths of the Word of God, but to pervert them. In the 5th century, Augustine led a rejection of this movement. He did not completely reject the allegorical method, but taught that only prophecy needs to be allegorized or spiritualized. Much essential biblical truth was salvaged by Augustine or Augustine, and later reformers such as Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, 
did so. But these men continued to use the allegorical method for unfulfilled prophecy. The allegorical method arose out of Greek pagan thought and was brought into the church from the world. But the Bible indicates there is a distinction between the earthly Davidic throne and the eternal throne of God in heaven. Revelation 3.21 To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down on my Father on his throne. If you study the Scriptures, you will find that the Father's throne is in heaven and that Jesus is now at the right hand of his Father's throne in heaven. But someday Jesus will sit on the throne of His Father David upon earth. That is yet to come. It is not happened yet. What difference does it make as to whether or not there is a literal throne of David on earth in the future? You say, but pastor, so what? What difference does that make to me today? There are three functions of this truth I want to end with. First of all, if God doesn't say what He means and means what He says, how do you know that John 3.16 really means what it says? Maybe that's just your interpretation. Maybe it means something quite different than what it says. Maybe God hasn't told us what He really thinks. That throws everything into confusion. If you use that method of understanding the Scriptures, then the Bible can mean anything that a smart person can make it sound like it means. No, God says what He means, and He means what He says. And He designed His Word in such a way that any Christian who can read and write and trust God and depend on the Holy Spirit, our teacher, can understand what the Bible says by observing it, interpreting it, and applying it. Amen? Amen. You don't have to know Greek and Hebrew and systematic theology and stand up in a pulpit in order to be able to know what the Bible says. God indicated that every Christian should search the Scriptures and see if these things are so, because you can know for sure what God has said. That makes a big difference in everybody's life. I remember when I first went to Philadelphia College of Bible 49 years ago. I was blown away by the fact that the scientific method could be applied to the Bible, that we could observe what it says, we could interpret what it says, and we could apply what it says and that it says what it means and means what it says, and that we can study the grammar, we can study the history, we can study the context, we can compare Scripture with Scripture, and then we can say, thus says the Lord. We can know. Hermeneutics determines your theology. And when you have a a historical, literal, grammatic understanding of interpreting the Bible, you will come out in the right place. The second thing that's important is that if if ever there was a time for believers to look up hopefully for the coming of the Lord, it is now. Jesus is coming back, perhaps today. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Our hope is not in the earthly church. Our hope is not in political institutions. It is not in the establishment of the kingdom of God on earth by ethical efforts. Our hope is in the coming one. 
who came according to promise 2,000 years ago and who's going to come again for all true believers and take us up to be with Him perhaps today. And someday He will rule and reign on planet Earth and we will rule and reign with Him. And then the third reason that I think this is important is that we need to know that we have a right to heaven. People ask me about this pin on here, the two question marks. Have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for sure that if you died today, you'd go to be with God in heaven? You can know. The Bible tells us you can know. And then the second question, if you were to die today and stand before God, and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? I hope you would say, I'm believing in Jesus Christ who died for my sins and rose again. I'm trusting in His blood. He paid for my sins and He has given me eternal life. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Jesus can prove His right to the throne of David by the Word of God. Can you prove your right to heaven by the Word of God? Are you believing the gospel? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you have never trusted in Jesus, you're not sure that you're saved, you can pray to the Lord right where you are today. You can receive Him. Would you just silently pray with me? Just say, Dear God, I know I'm a guilty sinner and I cannot save myself. Jesus, I believe that You died for my sins and rose again. Jesus, I receive You into my life as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for the gift of eternal life. Father, I thank you that for each one that has put their trust in Jesus today, you have given them eternal life. They will never perish, neither shall anyone pluck them out of your hand. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you remain standing as Joe Fort Our deacon comes to lead us in prayer, and after we pray together, we'll sing God Be With You till we meet again. Pray with me, please. Our fathers, we were reminded this morning, it's because of the work that you have done for us. There was a manger. There was a cross. There was an empty tomb. And for that reason... You demonstrated your love to us, that we have a hope, and it's because of that hope we uh, praise you for the meaning of this season, I think, as we celebrate as it all began when you sent your son to this earth. We pray this morning for our mission of the week, Paul and Penny Hessman. We pray that you would be with them as they are on furlough right now, but as they uh, rest and recover 
and prepare to go back to uh, minister to the Zulu people in South Africa. We just pray that you would uh, prepare the way and just continue to bless them as uh, you use them there to reach the Zulu people in South Africa. Go with us now as we go this uh, our way this week, as we continue to celebrate the holidays, we, we will be continually reminded for the reason for the season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>